channeled for you from having Endless Rain by Ed Japan on while in the shower. You are allowed to like sad music. There, I said it. Liking sad music is not going to block your manifestations. And holding too tightly to the idea that you can only listen to high vibe stuff is spiritual bypassing. And if you've been sticking around for a while, you know this. I'm tired of the spirituality industry being just another area of life where we are sold health solutions by aspirational people who benefit from keeping us stuck. And I have had this conditioning around having to prove that I have a right to say things. And I didn't want to do this episode because not only do I have half research done for one about art and healing and hedonism, so I'm making more work for myself, I also have no manifestation success story to back up the insight. But to be honest, I am a line three in human design and I'm speaking from the trenches because the reality is I don't have a success story for the high vibe only side either, but I have tried it. So. Today I will be sharing about music, words and magic and a content warning. I'm going to talk about Christianity too because I'm going to give you the behind the scenes of my story. Which is funny because in my notes I wrote BTS and we're talking about music and as much as I like the looks of some of the band members I have no clue whatsoever about BTS's music except for like 30 seconds of a song by Sugar in one of his solo projects. But that's beside the point. If you have ever heard it said to be careful what you sing along to because your words create your reality, this episode is for you. Welcome to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. I'm Alexis, your new witchy BFF. I'm known as Asteria in witchy circles. I'm a photographer by day and start obsessed urban witch by night. Sometimes the opposite, often both at once. And I'm as star obsessed as Natsuki's Shinomiya in Utapri. Or just a warning, there would be loads of otaku references. I'm a Capricorn Sun, Scorpio Moon and Scorpio Rising. Probably a Lyran Star Seed a tarot lover, and all of my lipsticks have a spell on them. I started this podcast to share my passion and the empowerment and self-love that cosmic witchcraft brought into my life. Come every Thursday for captivating conversations about life, business and magic that blend the practical with the woo. I bring you all-out history geek solo episodes and amazing guests to explore the ways in which we can bring more enchantment into our lives. Ready to live life limitless? Then let's dive into today's episode.
First things first. When I say you are allowed to like sad music, there's a caveat. If you only listen to sad music and it does not make you feel better, then you might want to consider the conventional wisdom that there is a problem there. If all you do all day, every day, is listen to old school Simple Plan and My Chemical Romance, shouting to the top of your lungs about teenage angst, and your life feels stuck in this negative cycle like you're reliving your teens, maybe that's not what you want to be doing. However, the first topic I want to address is perhaps the most obvious one, that music manipulates emotions. It has been used in ritual across cultures for thousands of years for a good reason. And that's the principle behind the whole idea that if you want to up-level, you want to surround yourself with high-vibe music. And that's so well and good when you want to raise your emotional states from neutral. I do that. I literally call Ultra Brust from Untano Princess Ama my manifestation anthem. I don't disagree with that at all. But the problem is when people try to raise their vibration without healing the negative vibration first. I use the words very deliberately. It's true that it works on a deeper level of our minds than doing affirmations in front of a mirror. And I'll bring you the science in a minute. But it also jumps the gun about the fact that we have a full spectrum of emotions we are meant to feel. It's something I realized this past year when I took a step back from being in a client-facing role and kept the availability for ported clients to a minimum. Instead of I've been working on all the stuff I'm about to launch with the shift on Mars to Scorpio and it wasn't even on purpose as well as on other areas of photography. Not changing my business, don't worry about that. If you've ever seen me behind the camera, you know that's something that makes me come alive from a genuine deep soul place. Actually, since I'm on the topic, if you are in London or close enough you want to travel in for a day, I have something exciting happening in November for spiritual folks and I'm taking small steps towards increasing my capacity for portrait clients. So, um, my website in the show notes, as usual. Anyway. As hard as it is for what my friend nicknamed the Scorpion girl boss, once that we were talking about the way she sees my Scorpio energy and the way I see it, I knew that I couldn't manifest my business goals deep down. I deep down really knew it, if, if I was honest with myself. And you want to know why? Because I have a pattern of workaholism in order to avoid my personal issues. And so I had to work through decades worth of stuff and generational trauma and trust that I was exactly where I was meant to be and that I could shift the tide at the snap of my fingers. Cause the cumulative effect of all of the small 1% shifts is the quantum leap. And one day something happens that makes you realize you are a completely different person from who you thought you were because you went through a death and rebirth cycle. And the leap is in the immediacy of the change, not the magnitude of it. Some people make it sound like it is about just the bigness of the change, but that's not the case. So if you've had your experience of a quantum leap and didn't sound anything like the going from 
25k months to 25k months in one month and then keeping that as a regular thing you're still quantum lived anyway one of the things that I realized during this year of inner work is that just how deep the conditioning of being raised Catholic went and that has three main layers to it there's probably more if I sat here and thought about it words music and community I will only touch on community in the context of music and corporate worship but I'm working on my Hierophant chapter in my book and plan to use any material that doesn't make it into the draft but that came up in my reflections and research for a short Scorpio season series over on Substack. So if that's something you're interested in, just subscribe to Witchy Musings. But fundamentally, the biggest appeal of paganism and witchcraft for me was the celebration of the inherent worthiness of the human person, both body and soul, without conditions. Because you would hear it in Catholicism too, especially in certain more progressive circles, that we are worthy and that our bodies are good, which was a key part of the ministry of Pope John Paul II and the shift towards the sainthood of the layperson in the mundane after centuries of putting religious life on a pedestal. But the thing that became icky for me and was among those that pushed me over the edge towards living was that it was always conditional on the big G God. And I realized it yesterday actually, and again it came up today before recording this, as I listened to Brene Brown interviewing Father Richard Raw, whom I deeply respect and was instrumental in my deconstruction of Christianity. And then today, as a friend posted a graphic to the extent of the spirituality industry is leading you astray because Jesus didn't say follow your heart, he said follow me. And I haven't even read it because I just muted the post right away. But I'm not here to pick fights with people who are still in the religion, although I hope to be there for anyone on the fence wanting to figure out life beyond what they have always known to be true. But the audience I'm speaking to intentionally is an audience that has either already left or was never in it. I'm just mentioning it because it made me notice a match of the worship music I used to manipulate my own emotions in prayer had a theme of worthiness. Things like Nothing Without You or Oceans. Oceans is such a beautiful song. I was so in love with it. But all the issues with Hillsong that was in seriously inspired work. Even if I do take issues with it now because of the damsel in distress vibe to it. But it has been important in my spiritual journey because it provided a stepping stone from a deep sense of unworthiness to having a sense that my existence matters unconditionally. Songs like Reckless Love, for example, they are specifically about the idea that the big G God loved us into creation and therefore we are worthy. Although there was the whole losing it and regaining it through atonement situation, but the end result was always that we are worthy because big G God says so. And in the theory, he loves us unconditionally. Though in practice, 2000 years of Christianity have made it very conditional 
and then added mental gymnastics to justify why it was in fact still unconditional love when it felt like anything but. But I digress. In May 2023, Christianity Today published an article titled Worship Music is Emotionally Manipulative. Do you trust the leader plucking the strings? Which I will link to in the show notes. The article references another article on Christianity Today from August 2022 titled Hymns and Neurons, How Worship Rewires Our Brains and Bonds Us Together. The premise of the 2022 article, which provides the context for the 2023 one, is that the Holy Spirit functions through interactional synchrony, because in the Christian worldview the Holy Spirit is behind all that is in the natural world. But even removing the creationist intention, this science is not far-fetched. In a paper published in the journals Social, Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience, Volume 16, Issue 1 and 2, from January-February 2021, co-authors Stephanie Hall, Merle Fairhurst and Annette Schirmer examined the animal tendency to synchronize their behavior with the of people in their same species, uh, what well, animals in the same species, and humans are not excluded from this pattern, so hence the Freudian sleep. And they observe that, I quote, rather than being restricted to overt motor acts like singing, tapping and dancing, it occurs at multiple levels. We see it in the coupling of cardiac activity between a mother and her unborn child, which referenced Feldman 2007. In concurrent changes in pupil size between parents and their infants, referenced Fawcett et al. 2017, or in the alignment of oscillations in neuronal polarization between two individuals talking to each other referencing Perez and Al 2017, end quote. The too long didn't read version of this is that our neurology responds to the stimuli of our surroundings and there are ways in which that can be manipulated. Corporate worship, like group rituals, are such a situation, but the same can happen in solo rituals, or even just as you go about your day-to-day life, listening to the sound of other people's voices. With songs, the stimuli come not only from the emotions expressed in the lyrics of a song, both through the words chosen and through the vibration of the voice itself, and the notes it hits and the level of emotion conveyed by people who know how to use themselves as an instrument rather than just have a pretty voice but they sing love songs like they have never loved anyone. Which brings me back to the song that started this all. It's Japan, in case you are not familiar, in which case you're welcome for the expansion of your horizons. No need to thank me. It's a Japanese band and while some songs are in English or partially in English, like the majority of Japanese bands, they sing in their native language. That didn't stop them from amassing a huge following internationally, not just among experts or people who speak Japanese, and that's because music transcends the rational mind. 
You do not need to know what the song means to understand what the singer is meaning to convey, because Yoshiki is the kind of high-caliber artist who is extremely attuned to the creative process and uses himself as his own instrument in it. And don't let me start talking about him, or it's going to be a three-hour sermon. This science on the influence of music on the brain is significant. It looks at the question from so many angles, it could have been its own series. So I will only reference studies that have a direct influence on your magical workings, and the idea that you can only listen to high vibe music to manifest, which at the end of the day is the most common goal for most modern witches. Not mine, I'm very much a let's head into the shadow and transform ourselves for the sake of it witch. But ultimately, I believe manifestation, if you manifest a life that is generally the most aligned to you, is a byproduct of us becoming the person we truly are. Here's a process of unbecoming the person that others made us. And the way we do that is to work with our subconscious mind, which brings us to the study that was referenced in Big Thing. Uh, in an article all the way back in May 2015 where research on the brain of people in a coma uh, showed that they were responding to stimuli like their name being called when it was paired with their favorite music. This is not the only study. There are old journals like Music and Consciousness published by the Oxford University Press that are dedicated specifically to this idea. And if the, you resonate with me, out of all the podcasters out there, chances are you feel the same disconnect with the lack of acknowledgement of trauma when people talk about up-leveling. And let me make it clear, if you want a space that tells you to live in your own pity party because life is hard and there are systems of oppression, so why even try, I'm not the right podcast for you. Here I share knowledge and tools to navigate and change the things we can control so that we can heal ourselves and go on to change the things we can't control as individuals but can as a society. I'm on a mission to influence even just one person who can go on to influence one person and so on. I actually speak up because I want to see change even if the change will eventually make what I have to say irrelevant and obsolete. I want historians born in an age so far removed from our reality that they look at our podcast like we look at the ancient texts talking about human sacrifice and we can't wrap our heads around the fact anybody ever lived life like that. Anyway, I digress. The studies showing that music bypasses our conscious mind and influences our subconscious, which is the part of us that is estimated to control up to 90% of our decisions in a day, so not a small part, are the basis for the belief that if you want to up-level, then you need to only surround yourself with high-vibe content and messaging. The problem with that is things are going to be shit sometimes, and if you were ever invalidating your feelings and experiences, then you are just going to bypass things that you are meant to feel. Get them stuck in your body, like all the feelings you learned to repress as a child, and not up level, no matter the fact you do all of the things right that all of the online teachers tell you to do. Because if you manifest from your subconscious, which we do, 
and I have broken down most of the science of manifestation in season 3 and I'll drop the links if you haven't listened to those episodes yet. What you do by forcing yourself to be high vibe, by manipulating yourself into it, is just reinforcing a pattern of unworthiness. Like those emotions you have are not good, therefore you are not good for having them, therefore you have to be good by not having those emotions. Now, I don't like to set myself up as a role model telling people to do as I do, let alone setting myself up as a guru telling people to do as I say, like I have some higher wisdom, but I've learned a thing or two in the school of Arnox that I did not learn from the University of Edinburgh. The reason I am so passionate about witchcraft is that it provides you with a container for things that society considers taboo. You don't have to do it with music, although I think it's an easy way to go about it, and also my favourite, because music has always been my favourite art, and yes, I know I take photos for a living, but my brain works like I'm putting images to a song and vice versa. Maybe I will make an episode on my creative process at work. Anyway, back to music. The way music bypasses the conscious is both the sounds and the words themselves. Which brings me to the next topic and then I'll circle back to using music in your practice because that incorporates both sounds and words if you choose songs with lyrics. And I'm going to look at words from two angles which are often mixed up in modern witchcraft because nobody ever mentions their sources anymore. Like, even in the 18th and 19th centuries, magicians making up their sources at least had an idea that if you can trace back a lineage, it gives it some credibility. Although I guess it's partly because of that that we got to a point where now we channel everything from the spiritual realm because we don't trust scholarship. I'm not like that though, although I'm working on embracing my Pisces North Node and not dismiss everything that comes to me as inspiration as worthless because my family said so. Anyway, when a source is missing, it's 90% chance that it's going to trace back to the Kabbalah. And because some of the ideas of Jewish mysticism remained in the Catholic tradition, I'm familiar with them, and so I was able to make an educated guess. So, of course, I looked it up, and the British Library has a whole section dedicated to it. From an article by Dr. Agar Palerch, quote, Sefer Yetzirah, one of the earliest Jewish mystical texts of Hellenistic prominence, dated by scholars somewhere between the 2nd and 7th century CE, describes the process of creation as taking place through the 22 letters of the Hebrew language and 10 cardinal numbers. Early on, Zephyr Yetzirah received magically-oriented interpretations, which explained how to imagine and possibly repeat the divine process of creation through manipulation of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, to the effect of creating a golem. Giving a name to a golem was believed to animate and control its body and conversely erasing the name would annihilate the creature." End quote. Later Ashkenaz texts would refer to the commentaries on the name of God and angels based on numerology. And these were popular commentaries because the connection between our world and the divine realm through language and numbers and these associations enabled the magician to exert influence on the divine realm through language, which is effectively one of the ways we think of magic, that is spells. The other would be in alchemy, that is potions. I'm being simplistic, but at the end of the day, it boils down to what you are manipulating. 
And a side note here, that's why I personally consider placebo magic to be its own branch of magic and not an approach to magic. Because what practitioners in that area are doing is manipulating their brains. And you can do that whether that's all you believe there is to magic, which is commonly the case for placebo magic, or whether you are more aligned to mainstream ideas of magic, like I am, since, as I explained in the natural magic episode, I don't see as much of a difference. But basically, it's not a case for me that we need a label now because we're doing something that has not been done before, but because somewhere along the way we A, lost the full breath of the magical tradition, so it's an act of reclaiming, and B, we have learned so much more about being human that it warrants its own space in the realm of human philosophy. So, from the Jewish tradition we get the ideas that words have power because of these symbolic associations of visual letters as well as sounds. Then we know that the Western esoteric tradition took ideas from Egypt and India. I'll start with India because I know this for a fact before I even open a new page to research it so I can write it down as a topic already. It is from them that we got the idea of words having a vibration. It's a huge thing in the yoga tradition that if you want to use Sanskrit, you need to use it properly, especially if you use mantra. That's because the language itself is sacred and because it is a tenant of Hinduism that the sounds of the words themselves have a frequency. If you have ever looked for help for insomnia on the internet, you are likely familiar with the westernized idea of yoga nidra. But strictly speaking, that's not a relaxation technique to put you to sleep. It's a way to use sound to enter an alternate state of consciousness. In the words of Swami Satyananda, as quoted by arhantanyoga.org, it is a state in which you are neither asleep nor awake. If you fall asleep, it is not yoga nidra. If you remain awake, then it is also not yoga nidra. If dreams overtake you, it is not yoga nidra. Yoga nidra is a state in which there is awareness of the conscious, subconscious and unconscious fields of your mind all at one time. It is a perfect therapy. It removes all psychological abnormalities and sankaras and helps you become your normal natural self. And actually this would be a great topic to explore another time. According to the Central Sanskrit University website, I quote, As per the Indian tradition, Sanskrit language has no beginning and no ending. It is eternal. Self-born God has created it. It is divine. It is everlasting. It was first used in Vedas and thereafter it has been the means of expression in other fields. Now, the idea that is popular in spiritual circles is the idea that Sanskrit is a vibrational language, that is, a language where the meaning and the sound are one and the same. And in the way you can tell the emotions behind a song in a language you can't understand, energy is moved through chanting. I have a short memory span, so I have often forgotten what a mantra translates to in English by the third repetition, but I get immersed into it and the energy shifts even if I'm just listening and meditating on it, which is not a conscious thinking since as I said I forget the meaning. I'm going to drop a video in the show notes for the Ajay Alay mantra for being in your power. Of course it's a religious text of a religious tradition that is not mine, 
if you may not resonate fully with the idea of them being attributes of the divine they have the translation in descriptions of the video so you can check it out before you start it uh, it's still a beautiful example of why this idea became popular in the west and if you listen to it and try chanting it without the music underneath the words you can really feel this idea of the language being vibrational because at the end of the day that's what vocal cords are for and our bodies are musical instruments I'm unknowingly into embodiment and keep talking about it and trigger all the folks who want to keep living in their heads but I legit feel the vibration of the chant in my whole body and before I move on I think it should be pointed out that there is no uniform pronunciation of Sanskrit across all of India. There are variations that are legit rather than just Westerners using the language and butchering it. Something that we are all guilty of at times anyway, because it's not that simple to override your automatic brain pattern while using a foreign word in the context of a sentence in another language. Which I would know, I'm bilingual and manage to sound foreign in both of my native languages. Anyway, another tradition that our esoteric tradition was fond of looking to is Egypt, of course. And we have some indications that there is a strong link between language and magic from the Book of the Dead. Heka, not to be confused with Hecate from the Greek pantheon, was the god of magic whose name itself means magic. Egyptologist Ogden Gaulet, in a commentary on the Book of the Dead, which is likely worth further studies on its own, wrote, I quote, Heka magic is many things but above all it has a close association with speech and the power of the word. In the realm of Egyptian magic, actions did not necessarily speak louder than words. They were one and the same. Thought, need, image and power are theoretically united in the concept of Heka. End quote. And we will return to this idea more deeply in a future episode, but I wanted to mention it as an example of where we get the idea of how strongly linked everything becomes if you start a journey with magic and witchcraft. And since I started this episode mentioning a Japanese band, it's worth mentioning yet another tradition where the idea of words having power is a thing. Kotodama, literally word spirit or soul, is the mystical idea that power dwells in the words and names. It holds that sounds can magically affect objects and that ritual word usages can influence our environment, body, mind and soul. It is a key aspect of Shinto and some of the spiritual teachings in the martial arts and has been a source of philosophical exploration at least since the beginning of the Tokugawa Shogunate in 1603. And there is a whole story there and that could be another three hour rabbit hole that we won't fall into today. Suffice to say, in Eastern philosophies, as far as I can tell, the idea is far more mainstream than it is in the West. Kazuya Hara, in a paper published in ETC, a review of general semantics, volume 58, number 3, from fall 2001, wrote that Japan is a high-context culture in the framework suggested back in the 50s by Edward the whole, where high content cultures or messages are such where information is either in physical context or internalized so that very little of the communication is coded in the message itself. Low content ones, on the contrary, express most of the information in the coded part of the message. It becomes unsurprising how little emotional literacy we have in English speaking countries as well as body language. 
As someone who is part Italian and has French ancestry, which are both high context cultures, that has been one way in which I never fit in in Britain and a major struggle with my ads. So forgive me if it sounds like I'm biased against low context. I probably am. Anyway, this is also something that is relevant to our magical practices and how much or how little we need in ritual to achieve the desired altered state of consciousness. Which brings us to music back again, which in a way is a high context means of communication. We started with the idea that music influences our subconscious, so the words that we speak and sing, and even just the words we listen to as we go on about our day, matter. And how that doesn't mean you can only listen to happy songs. One way you can use music in your practice is by using music to match the mood and the goal of any ritual and magical workings. But you can also use songs in the more immediate setting of feeling things as they come up in life. Some days you need the angry metal, some days you need something that makes you cry, and then once you clear that, you can then raise your mood by dancing to idol songs. But you can do more than that and use music to feel things that have been stuck in your body forever. By taking that idea and incorporating it with shadow work or somatic experiencing and yoga is a form of that. The poses have a chakra correspondence and you can also find teachers who take the approach of blending the two things. I'll drop the link of one I like. I have been a crying pigeon a lot lately. And of course proceed with caution, all this stuff um, and all the things in the mental health space, it's easy to make things worse even when moving from good intentions. But this is why I think it's simplistic and dangerous to tell people to just go down a motivational rabbit hole without first making sure that they have the space to receive it and rise up because they don't have things holding them down. That's without the fact that music that we like increases dopamine, a neurotransmitter that plays an important role in our cognitive, emotional and behavioural functioning. So if you generally like sound music, you may find that it has a different effect on you than what this focus on don't sing negative songs or you'll create a negative reality expects of you. Because dopamine is one of the two biological responses to the positive thoughts that we are expected to be thinking in order to manifest and the other being serotonin. These two hormones affect the part of the brain responsible for filtering information, which is one of the legit neurological functions behind our powers of manifestation. And a short aside, there are many ways to increase dopamine and serotonin, and if sound music is having a significant impact on keeping you in a low mood, or you feel drawn to sound music for most of what you listen to in a day, rather than heavy mists playlists, it can be that your mood is low to begin with. Either way, you might want to look at your life holistically, not fixate on one change only, which can lead down an anxiety spiral to outright OCD when the desired change doesn't come. Make sure that you get your omega-3 fatty acids from whatever source is aligned with your dietary morals and preferences before you have a go at your Spotify algorithm. There is so much out there from spiritual teachers that is very basic common sense advice. And granted, I'm sure there must be people for which basic self-care is a radical idea. 
and many others for which knowing stuff and practicing it are not equivalent that therefore benefit from seeing the examples of others doing it and being cheered on but there are also many who tried everything and are still stuck and nobody likes to speak to them except maybe if you have the money to pay for their 10k a month six months coaching container which if you could pay for you wouldn't be stuck but that's beside the point I was listening to the High Vibe In It podcast earlier and the guest Dahlia Brown said that she comes from a line of mystics but unlike her grandmother, if I remember correctly, she originally took the artistic route as I'm quoting, she always felt more embodied. And later in the episode she returned to the idea of movement and dance as key to brain health, which is what you need the Omega 3 for if that wasn't clear. And last week we had the three-minute movement with Michael Landau, so if you missed it, do check that out. And a lot could be said of dancing and ecstatic dancing and other things that can be done with our bodies and involve rhythmic movement. But it's before the watershed, unless you are listening to this at night and don't have children around. But I want to talk about movement as artistic and self-expression. There are different directions, so... While it's related to today's topic, I think it's best left for another time and that's why I decided to stick to the spoken word angle of how we relate to music. I haven't edited the guest episode for next week yet, but I'm already envisioning that even if I decide to keep it as one conversation like I did with April, this season may run longer than 10 episodes. We will see. As some changes bubbling under the surface for this the future of this podcast and my Talk newsletter after the first birthday that is coming up. So I'm not that inclined to be strict about the length of the container. The original idea of doing 10 episodes for a theme came from a desire to make something that had some meat to it, giving myself enough space to go to some depth into a subject without so much space I took it too far. It was an arbitrary number and I feel like I have something of value to say in extra episodes, then I will just have a longer season than the previous four. So I hope this episode was helpful in exploring how to use music in your practice and why you shouldn't stress too much about the music you like. Go and enjoy one of the many musical projects that Yushiki has and until next time, keep living in wonder. Thank you for listening to the Starry Sky and Witchy Things podcast. A huge thank you to Jenna Sword at Jenna S-O-A-R-D on Instagram for the cover art. 
and Papa Planet for the music. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to be notified when a new one comes out, please subscribe on your platform of choice. And if you really love it, leave a five-star rating and review, which will help me be found by more people who will enjoy it too. Also, feel free to share it on social media and with anyone you think should give it a shot. You can send your questions and comments to my email starryskypodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at starryskypodcast. And you can also subscribe to my monthly newsletter at witchymusings.substack.com where I share reflections and tips about the astrological seasons. Until next time.